Hello and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Dr. Craig Howe. He's a citizen of the Oglala Sioux Tribe and a founder and director of the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies, or CARES, is known. He earned his PhD in architecture and anthropology from the University of Michigan and served as deputy assistant director for the cultural resources at the National Museum of the American Indian Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Now, his career is a model of a highly educated indigenous individual, but it's his curiosity and hard work that has allowed him to create, to, to really be a culture bearer. And that is what makes him so interesting, that he's grounded in his culture and creates a place and a space for artists to explore themes of what well, we're all trying to address. So having said that, let's, let's have a listen to, to what I mean. so much for joining us at five plain questions it's really great to have you here today i'm happy to be here this is really exciting um so let's let's just jump into it uh can you tell us a little bit about your background who you're uh where you're from uh, a little bit about yourself please yeah um uh i i i'm from this land here along barren lodge creek uh this is where i grew up in a lot of my ancestors uh, grew up along here, and this is where I live now. I can look right out my window and see <laughs> where where I grew up, about a mile and a half over there. And so this land, I guess, has this big influence on where I was from. And uh, uh, I grew up in a house over there that uh, was a log cabin that my, uh, so it'd be my dad's dad's mother's brothers built they harvested the logs from over by a town called allen and um, brought them over with horse and wagon and built the log cabin on the uh, uh on aunt cecilia's uh, allotment and so grew up on indian trust land uh, all the way through my life and grew up ranching and that's how we lived as ranchers and so I, it's just a great life. And I think maybe a lot of us, we think the way we grew up was a good one because here we are, you know, but it's the benefits of growing up as a, as a rancher is you're outdoors all the time, year round. It's not a like summer outdoors thing. It's a year round. So no matter what the weather is, you have to be outside. You have to take care of those cattle and horses and other animals. And so you have a relationship with animals and you have a relationship with the weather uh, continuous there's no <laughs> you don't get a select you have to do that and uh, it's hard work it's just hard work and those are all good attributes i think uh, that were helpful for me as i grew up and then eventually it went to grade school in martin uh, martin south dakota so went to grade school there and high school there and i always like to say you know in 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 grade school it was the martin braves 
And then in high school, it was the Bennett County Warriors. And I thought, gosh, if I go to college, I'd get to be a chief, you know. And so I went, went off to college, of course, and never never became a chief. But uh, I did go to uh, architecture school at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln is where I graduated. I, I earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in architecture from there. And um, this kind of the schooling part and then went and eventually earned my PhD from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor in architecture and anthropology. It's an individual interdepartmental degree program. And so those were, that's my schooling. And then after that, uh, my trajectory was already in kind of this more academic area, I guess. And I ended up at the Newberry Library. That was my first job after graduating was as the director of the Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian History at the Newberry Library in Chicago. And then after that, I went to the uh, uh, National Museum of the American Indian as the mm-hmm. Deputy Assistant Director for Cultural Resources there. And uh, you know, my main job there was to conceive of those uh, three permanent exhibits in the Mall Museum. But I was also uh, the director over the uh, uh, archives and uh, the curators and repatriation. And so I helped map out uh, uh, the moving of all these um, items from the high center up in New York uh, to Suitland, Maryland, down outside of DC. Then came back home and worked at the, uh, taught in the graduate studies program at Oglala Lakota College. Uh, One of my grandpas in the Lakota way or an uncle a great uncle, I guess, you know, non-Lakota way, uh, was what the found, he was one of the founders and the first president of that uh, tribal college. And so it was, it was really uh, reaffirming to be able to teach in the graduate program there at Ogallala Lakota College. And while I was there, I started this uh, research center called the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies. And that was in 2004 when we started the, founded the center, and um, I've been the director ever since. And I haven't taught at OLC since probably around 2009 now, I think it is. Hmm. So that's kind of the trajectory, I guess, from the land to all the way to D.C. and back. <laughs> and I, I think your relationship with the Plains uh, goes back about five years. Um We've hosted uh, a couple of exhibitions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those exhibitions? So the first one that we developed in, a, in the first one that came to the Plains uh, Art Museum was called Lakota Emergence. And this was the first exhibit uh, we call it's Eventually, we called these, uh, the, um, these Lakota Educational Art Projects is the umbrella for this leap. And it's this idea of, uh, we're not going to take baby steps. We're going to take big steps here. We're going to leap forward of the way American Indians are, American Indian art is um, um, displayed, uh, exhibited. And so that first exhibit was called uh, Lakota Emergence. And it was, we were just trying to question every aspect of exhibits. Who are the curators? Who, what is the concept of the exhibit? Who are the artists? What 
are, are the arts? How are they displayed? Who comes? Who's the intended audience for these exhibits? We just question everything. And uh, so we stepped on a lot of toes to do that. So the narrative of that exhibit is, it's a 1,251-word narrative about how, it, describing how Lakota ancestors came onto the earth. Um, and we took that narrative and divided it into 16 passages. And then for each passage, uh, the uh, assistant curator, uh, uh, Kayla uh, Schubert, uh, Kayla Abed now, she, so she was the assistant uh, curator and she was working at the Sioux Indian Museum, one of the three arts and crafts board museums in Rapid City. And so we selected items from the uh, Sioux Indian Museum collections that were created by Lakotas. So the first criteria was all the artworks had to be by Lakotas, period. And so it's not an Indian exhibit, it's a Lakota exhibit. And so we identified items in the collection that were created by um, Lakota ancestors that we could see a connection to those passages, right? So we had these 16 passages. And so whatever part of the overall narrative was being talked about in that one passage, we'd find an item or uh, maybe more than one item that would fit that. Then we invited 16 artists Lakota artists to uh, create an artwork tied to their passage and we asked them to also try if they could to incorporate those items that we had brought selected from the Sioux Indian Museum. So we ended up with these, this uh, a mod an exhibit with 16 modern artists, eight women, eight men, uh, some emerging artists, some well-established artists uh, about a traditional Lakota narrative that incorporated the, the modern art with these, uh, um, <laughs> I guess we'd call it historic or uh, art works that were in the Sioux Indian Museum. And then we, it was exhibited for four days. That was the, in, the <laughs> that's how naive I was or we were, the whole exhibit was four days and we worked on it for you know six months or something. And mm -hmm. we ended up with a four day exhibit at, at a multi-purpose room in the Doll Arts Center in Rapids. Mm. That was the beginning. And so that was that first exhibit. And I believe it was that exhibit at the Plains um, that first brought me into that building. Oh. Um, and so that was such an incredible experience walking through. And of course, uh, my relationship with so many of those artists, it was it was like seeing old friends. Right. Um, it's a well done, well done exhibition though. So, well, thank, thank you. And, you know, I always say we can come up with really good ideas. And I, this is part of my training in architecture. I can still remember one of my professors once told me, guy was so proud of I come up with some clever concept, you know, and he was like, you know, <laughs> coming up with ideas is easy. What's hard is implementing. Yeah. And so same thing on that is, uh, yeah, I think we, we came up with a lot of, really good ideas and not all of our ideas even made it into reality but you have to operationalize it and in the case of an exhibit one of the key operations is these artists they have to produce and they can't just produce you know like a c plus piece of work they gotta they gotta be on their a games and one of the cool things about 
the exhibitor, a lot of the artists are learning about these narratives um, or they're being able to um, examine these narratives in depth for, for probably the first time. Mm. And it's, so it's educational to the artists and it's also then educational to the community, to, to the visitors to the exhibit. Because as you remember, the, the, our exhibits have the whole narrative there. When you come to our exhibits, you get that whole narrative. It's not a synthesis of the narrative. It's the whole narrative. And so you can read word for word how that narrative has been published. And, and then you get to see these amazing artworks by these contemporary Lakota artists. And in the case of uh, Lakota Emergence, you could also see these amazing artworks that are in these museums that hardly ever get to be displayed. But you again, you're seeing these in relation to this narrative not to usually you have non-indian curators who have some idea of what they're of what they're doing their exhibit about i mean that's they're these gatekeepers and they're the experts and they're the ones that decide what gets to be exhibited and how the relationships are whereas what we're trying to do is decenter these curators even if they're native <laughs> such as ourselves but center on these traditional narratives and, and, and highlight those not our thinking or our, our clever ideas. Yeah, no, that's, it's fantastic. And it's, it's so what's needed. Um, oftentimes in this, this podcast, uh, we, we refer back to, um, Oscar Howe. Yeah. Uh, and one thing that he had shared with, with his students and that then were shared down with their students was to understand what you are making to fully understand what you are doing. Don't make it up. Don't make an image just to make an image. And I think that uh, given some of the artists that were in this exhibition, um, you know, and I think it holds to the standards that you were holding up is that they had to create works that fully understood culturally what they were making in relationship to this exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important. Oscar, how <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, I didn't know that, right. I didn't study under him. So I, they don't have that type of relationship to him, but I have extreme admiration for him as an artist. And it was his letter to the Philbrook when they rejected his art. It has stuck with me still to today. This idea that who are you to say my art is not art, right? It's not Lakota or Indian or Dakota in his, his case, Nakota. Uh, uh, that's that's powerful. That's in the 1950s. These, these are examples in in our history, our history meaning American Indians, but up here, Ocheti Shakowin or Lakota history of of activism and speaking back to power. Right, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, one little artist telling the Philbrook, "Hey, you don't have that right. We're gonna determine, or I am in this case." And so, same thing. We we were real conscientious about uh, including artists that no one would, if they just see those artworks, they're not going to say, oh, there's a Lakota artist. What we want to show is that every Lakota nation is just like any other nation. We have, we're diverse. We look different. We speak different. We draw and paint and write differently. And that's what we're trying to do is diversity. You know, we want to demonstrate and embody diversity every way we can. 
So yeah, we have, you know, like say Athena uh, Latoka's piece, you know, that's, people are going to look at that and like, what? <laughs> or uh, Andrea Lechberg, you know, these, these are these amazing pieces. And I guess, uh, uh, so what I'm trying to say a little bit is, it's not that they have to draw on their cultural um, experiences. Uh, we want them to draw on their, their creative potentials, right? Yeah. It's that... Uh, it's not about being cultural. It's about being creative. And, and we're challenging you. Here's a passage. Do something creative about that passage. And we don't have, we're not trying to stress the quote unquote cultural aspect of it. Just like if, if there's some exhibit, like in South Dakota, they do a biennial, a governor's biennial art show, you know, so every two years they have an art show. I don't think, I mean, I know they don't tell people, you know, draw from your South Dakota cultural history when you do this, right? It's just yeah. do your best art. And that's what we were uh, trying to stress there. But do your best art in relation to something very central to Lakota history and identity. Who, who are your, your biggest influences? I, the biggest influences are my relatives. I mean, absolutely. I, they, we, we were blessed. We, meaning my siblings and cousins, we're just blessed to have these great role models of our parents and grandparents. So those relatives set models for us of how to behave, I would say, and how to work or live your life. And, you know, like all of them are just really good. I, they, I'm sure they weren't saints, uh, but for a young boy and then a young man growing up, they, they set really good standards for how to operate or how to live and, uh, those behaviors or lessons that I learned, I think, are what still guide most of what I do. So this this idea influences, I'd say, these relatives are out there. And these include mostly parents and grandparents and then uncles and in the non-Lakota world who we'd call these uh, great uncles and great aunts, right, that they just were good people, you know, and, and the way they... Uh, lived you know hard working but also with a lot of humor and uh joy i guess in what they were doing it didn't matter what they were doing they did it and did it in a way that we could get through it it's not pleasurable a lot of those things you have to do you just gotta work through it but then there's a lot of humor not uh, demeaning humor uh, it's it, it, it self-deprecating a lot of it you're right? uh, demonstrating their naivete about something and it's just it's so fun and we learn so much uh from that they're they're really teaching us if we're paying attention and so it's not just making fun of themselves or or us being able to laugh at them but we can realize oh this is something i should learn from so anyway this my my biggest influences then are these relatives, but then intellectually or academically, I would say the, the one person I would keep coming back to is uh, Vine Deloria Jr. And I 
just blessed I got to, you know, spend a lot of time with him as a person. So that was one thing, but I got to spend far more time with his writing. And uh, in co when I was at Ann Arbor, I actually took an independent studies course, developed an independent studies course with a professor who let me just read everything that <laughs> I, th I told my idea, a prospectus to him was, I'm going to read everything Vine Deloria Jr. has written. Well, that's how naive I was. Right? <laughs> I never got it. But I did all of his books. I think I read all of those, I think. It, it, it was like, in my mind, there's a nearly 20 books at that time, you know, and, and then quite a few of his articles or book chapters. But just his way of writing, his... Um, and his status in academia, although he wasn't really a traditional academic, you know, and so I could see where, in my mind, I, I wasn't, I couldn't see myself as a traditional academic. So it was nice to have a model of someone who wasn't a traditional academic, but could operate in that uh, academic world, but he could also operate in Martin, South Dakota, right? He'd come back here and, and just be a, a, a regular guy. And there's, Again, watching and observing how he operated in, in the world was just really influential in me. And then kind of, I would, a few other influences in that vein would be these early writers like uh, Charles Eastman, and Ella DeLoria and Zinkala Shah and Char uh, uh, Luther Standing Bear. You know, these, it's just fascinating to see. Those are the people who really had to deal with this uh, transition from pre-reservation to reservation where mm -hmm. they were all speakers of their language and had to learn English. They had never gone to school and they had to go to school. And I mean, it's just, uh, there's issues today with all, a lot of us have to uh, deal with things, but when you compare it to what they had to do, I just, we, <laughs> they had amazing, um, uh, uh, obstacles and they overcame them. and and it, it, it just not too much bitterness there very little bitterness there yeah. i think that's that's a really good point um <clears throat> you know a lot of the elders uh growing up thinking back to the interactions uh the kindness and the gentleness that they had towards us um and then later on learning what they all went through uh my father is an example uh, he's 86. Um, he's, he's near the end. Um, but he went through all of that born in 34, didn't learn English until he was in the orphanage, uh, by the nuns. Um, but while, just like you said, while we're going through, we're having to deal with those issues today, you know, generationally passed down, he's as kind and gentle, uh, no sign of bitterness as far as that goes. Yeah. And uh, that's the same age as my mom and dad. Both were born in 34. But I think mm -hmm. it's still that generation at two generations before them is when we're at, you know, Eastman, say, or Stan Luther Standing Bear. And <clears throat> those people who, again, grew up prior to reservations, you know, it's that's hard to imagine. I mean, mm -hmm. you, we have to get on our A game creatively to imagine what that would have been like, where their parents and their grandparents 
I mean, live live by hunting buffaloes. They yeah. they didn't have houses in our. They had teepees, right? They 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 live by horse. It's just garden, you know, kind of sporadically. It's just didn't speak English. It, and they then in the span of a a few years, those individuals went from that life to going to a uh, school and graduating from that school and and going having to go through school as English speakers. You know, it's just yeah. our. I would think that those generations are just, and I can't think of the analog, the difference there uh, to what we're at. It'd be like if when we can get to uh, sp- uh, uh, <laughs> space, not space travel, but when you can. Uh, get beamed someplace else you know? <laughs> yeah, or go yeah. back in time or something. If we can do something like that, that's the analog. We, we, it's just so hard to imagine that, that transition those people made. And like my grandpa's grandpa, he was there when they hung the 38 Dakotas, you know I mean? He seen that. Wow. And, and he was a boy. And, yeah. and, and I, again, it was one of those things. I didn't believe that narrative. I, I said, no, 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 you know, because I was a smart academic. So I, I knew better than the oral tradition. And so I said, no, he couldn't have been there because the only people that were there were the, were men. And, and, and they were, huh? <laughs> so uh, then at one time I was doing, you know, my due diligence, reading a book about the Dakota War. And, and here they mentioned cooks basically no non-indians would cook for these 303 prisoners so who the cooks were were 20 dakota women who were widows and my grandpa's grandpa i just call him grandpa ross uh his father had been killed by the ojibwe's and so his mother was a widow and she and one of her sisters or her only sister were two of those 20 cooks and he was a boy, so he was with them. So it took me a while to get to the point where I realized this oral... It was one other time where I questioned oral tradition and I was wrong. And so mm. I finally realized it's better to say oral tradition is right and then prove, try to prove it wrong rather than to say, well, I know and that's wrong and then get proved wrong. So, uh, yeah, he, for instance, so he watched... He was there and then he was one of the... 273 who were sent to prison at Fort McClellan. Okay. And if you read the manifest, it'll say there's, and I can't remember, I think it's 273 adults and two children. Well, he's one of those two. And so he was in prison for four years. And, and he, you know, there's just no, from what he wrote and what grandpa talked about him and my other grandpas talked about him, he wasn't bitter. Four years in prison, watched 38 of his kin people killed, and he wasn't bitter. Uh, maybe he was bitter internal, but he didn't exude that, you know. And so mm-hmm. I think those are those people at that generation where they, they went through that. Those are the ones that I try to draw inspiration from as far as this model of put what we're doing in context. You know, and it's it's we can overcome all these issues in front of us here. Uh, those people have, in my mind, they had it a lot tougher. Yeah, yeah. My dad, uh, my family came from that 
conflict as well. They went to Canada yep. and came back. My my dad often talks about his great grandmother, how she took her two kids up to Canada, mm-hmm. came back down to North Dakota to Fort Thompson, um, had a child at Fort Abercrombie. His his grandfather, uh, in the thousands of miles that she traveled, again no highways, right. no interstates, you know, no grocery stores along the way. Right. <laughs> that level of of strength and courage it takes a, a young woman to be able to make those travels. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Ross. So there are Ross family, uh, in upper Sioux. Uh, yep. is there a relation to the Rosses there? Possibly? I think, I think so. Yes. They were Medewa Kantawa and, um, uh, I mean, grandpa Ross was, and yeah, it, it, of course he didn't get that name. He wasn't Ross then he was Yumanimani Hota was his name. And it was when they were imprisoned at um, Fort McClellan down in Iowa is where he got the name um, Ross. Uh, well, Amos, actually. Mm. He got the name Amos because the bishop was coming and went through the books of the Bible naming all these kids. And so <laughs> it came to Amos. And so that's how he got Amos. And then uh, when he was around 14, is when he finally got out of prison in the, you know, they were brought up on a steamboat to uh, Fort Thompson. And then he walked down to uh, Niobrara hmm. uh, where Santis were. Right. Yeah. And uh, he's the, he, he writes this, we have it in writing, but he also told his grandkids, of course. And um, <clears throat> he, he was going past a building and, and there was a, kids were in there and there was someone a white woman talking to him and anyway he was curious and he went and here it was a schoolroom, and so he went to school and that's when they asked him his name and he couldn't pronounce uh, Russell and he and 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 what they got was Ross so he ended up Amos Ross being named getting these two anglicized names uh, from outsiders uh, and so he became Amos Ross and that's where where that name uh, comes from in our uh, in our lineage of, of of Rosses it's so interesting hearing how some of these names came about <clears throat> very human situations uh, very very human situations yeah oh, wow wow that's so interesting um shifting Shifting back, uh, the third question uh, I ask is about how you developed your career, uh, both college and post-college. Um, how, I guess, what brought you into this direction of where you are? How, how have you developed that? Yeah, there's no... I, I've tried to think about this at different times, and there's no roadmap there. You know, the... Yeah. the uh, I don't know how it ended up uh, at any point. I always think of it as kind of like a tree. It's that we we start out and it's pretty clear we're on that trunk, right? And so we we go to grade school and high school and that's pretty clear. We we don't have a lot of choice there. And then pretty quick, you can choose. Well, I might, <clears throat> excuse me. Then it's pretty quick. We can choose. Do we want to... Uh, uh, go to college or not, for instance, and and there's a decision point. And then if we do go to college, in my case, then you know where do we go? And there's decision points, and you just it's this constant branching. Uh, 
with every branch having extreme potential and positivity. You know, that it's not that, oh, we missed our chance. No, that was a different branch and things would be different, but they could be just as bad or just as good, you know, on any of these branches that we take. And so there's no way I could map out what, what has happened. Uh, um, but I think it, when I was high school age, I could not wait to get away from here. I wanted to get out of here. I was, the, the quickest I could get, the faster I could get away from here, the better then. By the time I already, I think in graduate school, but I think even before then, it was how can I get back home and make a living without having to work so hard as a rancher? So the goal was, I think the goal was always to come back and live here, uh, in this land, make a living without having to do all that work. And, and that wasn't possible. I couldn't conceive of that. You know, and then I was studying architecture. Well, gee whiz. Yeah. I can tell you, rural America is not the place to be looking to be an architect. You know, they just, <laughs> you can't do it. So eventually, though, with the internet came this idea that we can be remote, just like what we're doing now. We can do these things remote. Even this was not conceivable, you know six years, maybe 10 years ago, or even maybe a couple of years ago. So mm -hmm. uh, it was just fortune and then being able to uh, navigate those systems to get to here. I didn't have it mapped out. I can just say that. Hmm. Hmm. So in that time then, um, opportunities have come, have come up. Uh, I guess, how have you uh, either sought them or how have they presented themselves? And has that shifted over time has gone by? Yeah, there's, I, you know, it's always, so I guess the main thing to say is that this is what happened or as I see what happened to me and it, it, whether that is useful to anyone else is a whole different question, right? It's just unique circumstances, but it's weird that I'm studying architecture, but I end up as the director of the Center for American Indian history at the Newberry Library. That, that was this huge disconnect, you know, right away. And so I think then it was clear to me, but I think it was before that was that, you know, you just, it, it you can't map this out. And so whatever you're doing, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to do it the best I can. And uh, uh, always grounded in, the, this this knowledge, whether it's out of books, which when I first went to college, I, I, it was called Love Library. I mean, usually I know these libraries inside and out of where I went to college because as soon as it was just this revelation when I got to Lincoln, there was this huge library and I just spent, I mean, I don't know if you added it up, months years maybe in the in in the base most of it was in the basement in the where the old journals are mm -hmm. and i just went through every one every issue of all those journals like american indian anthropology uh, american indian ethnology no bureau of american ethnology and uh, american folklore and i don't remember all those journals and i just started issue one number one and read them uh, and not necessarily read them i skimmed them i was looking for anything dealing with at that time sue 
And I just copied every penny I had went into photocopies, right? And in just learning this, trying to get on top of the, my game as far as knowing this history. So that gives me a good grounding, I think, having that academic or, or at least this book knowledge. And then when you have personal knowledge, which you have to get through uh, living or talking to your relatives and, and older relatives, but somehow that gave me this basic uh, uh, foundation that I could build from and, and go to the Newbury Library or go to the National Museum of American Indian uh, or go to the uh, graduate program at OLC. I mean, I just couldn't map it out. I didn't know. Uh, I wanted to come home and I didn't know how to get here. And so I just tried every way I could. And it kept getting me further away all the way to the East Coast. But then <laughs> I was able to make a big leap back. <laughs> So that being said, um, what what would you say to the 18-year-old or the 22-year-old that's listening to this? Yeah, so first is there's no one way. Uh, so don't worry that, don't try to map it all out. It's what I would say. That Again, I go back to that branching. Uh, it's just going to be all these branches and and there's going to be all these forks in the road and by golly uh we can be disappointed we didn't get that one fork but that's the keep going and and keep growing right we want we don't want to be part of something that gets nipped off or pruned right and then we're we're that's a dead end there so this idea that if and and we're all going to have all these setbacks there's going to be roadblocks like you wouldn't believe and you can't let those defeat you, you know? And so I guess uh, keep engaging. I always say engage those six inches between your ears. That's, that's our, um, that's our superpower. Is that we got those six inches between our ears and two things. And I guess is this differentiation between education and schooling that, the goal, I think, if the, if we all have a goal, we should all be highly educated, and and that's different than being highly schooled. Now, I and I really differentiate these because you don't have to go to college to be highly educated. Our ancestors were highly educated, <laughs> and they might never went to school, right? Mm -hmm. And and so we can have uh, highly educated people who are poorly schooled. And we can have some highly schooled people who are poorly educated. And so if you don't want to go to school, fine, but be highly educated. And this is where inquisitiveness or, or curiosity are key. And this idea of tinkering and, and trying to uh, do the best we can, find, uh, find something in no matter what we're doing that is uh, challenging our, us intellectually or maybe even physically. Um, and then the, so that's, that's this key between education and schooling and striving always to be highly educated. Um, and then this other thing is the model for those who are going to go into education, I think is this, I like the uh, metaphor of a horse race. Uh, I think what happens to a lot of say native, uh, young students university students is they go and they want to make a big splash at their universities and 
um, do all these things. I mean, they see all these injustices or all these opportunities to make uh, uh, changes and, and they get caught up in that. And a lot of times we lose them as far as getting their degrees and, and then becoming gatekeepers and, mm. and changers. So the metaphor that's cultural is uh, for the Plains people is, is horse raids. And the goal of those is to travel a long way away. And here I'm pointing kind of towards crow country, right? <laughs> you go up there and what you want to do is liberate those horses from those crows, you know? So, so the, the, when you read about these, you can see that the goal was to be as, um, to go a long way away and then study. Before you go down there, you, you watch and you watch the behavior and the patterns. And, and then there are some cases where they dress up as, so in disguise, right? So dress up like, like a crow person, wearing crow type uh, clothes or maybe putting their hair in a way that would look like, uh, from a distance, it might look like crows and uh, 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 trying even to smell like crows, right? So it's just this idea of being as... Um, as part of that, as inconspicuous as possible. And then you go in and get the very best horse you can. In academics, that's this degree. So come in there, study, think about it, watch and observe, go in, get that degree, get that horse, and then come out. And that's, I think, a cultural way to think about education, that when you get that, then you can do, it's like a passport then. You have that degree, that's a pass. No one can take that away from you. That's yours, you've earned it. And it puts you on a par with everyone else. And that's what a lot of times they use. They mean mainstream is uh, there'll be these gatekeepers with a certain level of education. And then most of us are don't have that level. And so they can uh, trump us with that with that education. But when you get your education, then you have that passport to that uh, to that country club or to that arena, and then you can play on their on that playing field. Hmm. Very well said. That that was wonderful. Um, <laughs> so where where can our listener uh, find what you're doing? Uh, uh, be able to connect with you if that's possible. Well, okay. yeah, they can find us. Um, uh, the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies is the company and the acronym is CAIRNS, C-A-I-R-N-S. So uh, uh, on the internet, we're at www.nativecairns. By the time I got to trying to get the domain name, Cairns was already taken. So, oh. so we have to have native, N-A-T-I-V-E, C-A-I-R-N-S, native Cairns dot org and on there is uh, a, a lot of content about what our organization has done since its founding in 2004 and if people want to contact me it's just craig at native is my email and uh, i'd be happy to uh, visit communicate with people any way i can okay we'll put those we'll put those in the show notes so people okay. will be able to click on that so yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Howe, thank you so much for your time. This, this was a really great conversation and I really appreciated this. You're welcome, Joe. Thanks for uh, conceiving of this podcast and inviting me to be a part of this. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, 
Thank you. Thank you. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Dr. Howe again for his time and sharing his story with us. I, I always enjoy these episodes where we bring in administrators, uh, creative intellectuals who are creating spaces, who are creating opportunities for artists to, to do what they do best. And, you know, Dr. Howe is not the first um, administrator uh, or director that we've had on the series, and I really hope he's, he's not the last. But what these conversations provide is a perspective that um, is, is needed to hear uh, within the conversation that is happening. And so I, I, I deeply appreciate and deeply connect um, with with conversation and the previous ones that we've had and so yeah i, I just um want to thank dr howe for that um on a personal note too it, it's it's great to it's great to hear different aspects of and connections to the 1862 war in minnesota because that's really where uh part of my family history starts from uh we we can tie back stories to that time and in my family we hear stories from elders that are hearing it firsthand from those that were there. So I hear these stories secondhand. So uh, I, I have a different perspective on that time just due to the family connection and uh, the stories that have been passed down. So I, I really appreciate uh, when things like this are shared with me and with us uh, from Dr. Howe and those who are connected with that. So that being said, uh, more importantly, <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story perspective from our community. Uh, you know, I, I talked about this last time. Time is, is a commodity that we can never get back. So it's appreciated that, that you spent some of that here with us. And I invite you to come back next week as we have another incredible person that I really can't wait for you to hear. Um, just really excited about the next episode as well. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canna, that's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook or at the PlainsArt.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. Um, just an update with the, the Plains Art Museum. Um, you know, we still have Roger Bohr's Things I Remember, uh, exhibition of his current monotypes. Uh, please come check it out. Uh, come ask questions. And uh, Mr. Brower's work is, is unique and amazing, and I encourage you to come. Uh, one of the previous episodes, we talked about the uh, Summer Art Institute uh, that's coming up, so um, go to the website, apply if you are a high schooler or a college-age student. So, and that's it. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, message me if you have someone that you would like me to interview. I'd really like to hear from you. All right. You take care, and I will see you next week.